0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Kortz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're safe and well. Well, today is a special edition... I am happy to announce that this is my first episode as a member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Nothing changes in how you all will uh, access the podcast, but now we have the power of Pantheon to help us get this out to an even wider audience. Pantheon is the podcast network for music lovers. They have over 70 different podcasts dedicated to all different genres, bands, and angles in the music industry. Uh, Anything you can think of, they've got it. Among all their podcasts, there's truly something for everyone. And now that includes the Grateful Dead as well. So I am honored to be a part of their family, and I want to thank them for helping us share our little piece of the Grateful Dead world with all the music lovers out there. You can check out everything they have to offer at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today is also special because we're taking a little bit of a different approach, kind of like we did in the episode where the Brothers Lazaroff interviewed me. Uh, Instead of having a musician today, we're going to have author, historian, official biographer, and former publicist for The Grateful Dead, Dennis McNally, on the program. Dennis began as The Grateful Dead's publicist in 1984 and stayed on until 2004, long after the death of Jerry. He was involved in the early offshoots and spent four years on the road with Rat Dog as well. He wrote the band's official biography, A Long Strange Trip, along with numerous other books and is considered the band's official historian. I met Dennis at our first show at the Fillmore in 1999. I had been in the band for about a month, maybe three weeks, actually, I think. And he was really the first member of the Grateful Dead family that I met. That was actually the first time we met in a professional capacity. Uh, But earlier on in 1990, when I was, I guess I was 22 years old, and was on a Grateful Dead tour in Europe. And it was the second day of the London shows. And Mickey Hart was doing a, a book signing for Drumming at the Edge of Magic. Uh at a bookstore somewhere in London so I woke up super early and super beat up from the show the night before and traipsed across London and was the first person in line total fanboy getting to meet Mickey Hart and uh, got in line bought the book, had it signed and got back in line to ask another question and Mickey said, you again? I said, yeah, I got lots of questions he goes, go stand over there with that guy and just wait so I went over there and it was Dennis McNally uh, who I obviously did not know. And I stood against the wall with him at the bookstore, and we just chatted. I don't really remember what about. But uh, he hung out with me until the book signing was over, and then sure enough, Mickey came over and spent a few minutes with me and uh, answered some questions before they got in the van to take off. Got a nice picture together. Uh, he wrote To Rob, Drum On, in my copy of the book, which I still have. So uh, that was pretty cool. Over the years, we've stayed in touch with him and his wife, Susanna Millman, who's a fantastic photographer, And I was so thrilled he agreed to come on with me today. Uh, So much to talk about, so little time. We could probably do hours and hours with Dennis. Uh, But I'm really happy to have him for the time we do. So once again, I'd like to thank Pantheon for welcoming me into their family. And before we get to the conversation, I humbly ask you to support the podcast in any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month. With a Patreon subscription, you get exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, of which there are quite a few from my conversation with Dennis, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all the proceeds go to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out all about this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net, and wherever you're listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dennis McNally. Okay, so I am here today with Grateful Dead's former publicist, biographer, historian, Dennis McNally. How are you today, my friend? I'm all right. How's yourself? I'm doing great. Again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you are so, so busy. Um, And so, so much to talk about, but first, why don't we catch up real quick on uh, how'd you spend this crazy pandemic time? What's kept you busy?
0: Oh God, well, I was, I was writing a book, uh, which will keep you busy no matter what the time, Um, and uh, have a first draft of that, second draft actually. Uh, And, uh, you know, my commute is from my bed to my desks, uh, which is (laughs) to say that i um, in many ways, the, the pandemic had a very limited effect on, you know, outside of looking at the world melting down, um, uh, it, it had a limited effect on my daily thing, and fortunately, um, since musicians couldn't tour, uh, obviously that, uh, you know, there were a couple of tours that I would have worked on um, that got canceled, uh, but since musicians couldn't tour, they put out, rec- you know, CDs, and um, And I actually, the last two months, I've been the busiest I've been in 15 years. That's a great Um, problem to have. It was the the preferable problem, although it just was. (laughs) But anyway, I'm starting to um, come down off that particular uh, circus. So grateful.
1: Well, you've worked with so many different bands and you've written numerous books on multiple subjects. But, but today we're going to stick primarily with The Grateful Dead, and I want to start right at the beginning for you. Do you recall, when is the first time you heard The Grateful Dead, that you got turned on to this music?
0: Uh, in the fall of 1967, um, I was a freshman in college, and um, I uh, went to work, or, you know, volunteered at the local, at the campus radio station, and I came across what was then a six months old, brand new album, the first from the Grateful Dead. Um, and I loved it, especially Morning Dew. Um, and um, and played it a lot. Um, but then, uh, for whatever reason, I, I somehow I missed Anthem and, and Oxmox. So I just sort of... Um, and so when I really fell into the soup was um, in the uh, fall '71. I went away to graduate school and hooked this one good buddy. Uh, long story short, in early 1972, uh, I was sitting around talking about uh, working on a book and he uh, a dissertation, and he said, "You should do Kerouac. Uh, his, his papers are at Columbia, and my buddies. You can stay with my friends in the Bronx," uh, which kind of is exactly what happened. Um, and so that was in February and, uh, that really started in the summer. And then that fall, October 2nd, um, the dead came to Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, and, uh, in addition to telling me to work on Kerouac, uh, this guy was a deadhead. Um, we did nothing but listen to records. This is before tapes. We're old. Right. <laughs> um, uh, we listened to grateful dead records with the single exception of hot tuna. Um, and, um, he took me to my first show and told me to open my mouth and drop something in. And i that was my introduction to The Grateful Dead.
1: What, what was it? What was about this music that just pulled you in, besides whatever you opened your mouth for? But what about the music physically pulled you in?
0: Well, the best part of being a, a deadhead for me, I, I, in particular, um, at the beginning, when it was really unfamiliar um uh was when they would jam from a song to a song and I would suddenly sort of look up and realize oh they've been playing that new song now for like the last three minutes but I ne- I never witnessed the transition because you know it was all new to me um and that and to some extent that's that's all you know that's uh, that, that sort of the space between um, uh, songs is is just you know, endlessly fascinating. When you don't know what's coming, there's a, a show, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, at the Miami Highlight Fronton in 1974. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember all the details. I don't even know what song they started with, but they started with a song and they just sort of went out into outer space for 20 minutes. And they, what I called, signaled at least three songs. I could hear them considering going into that song and now maybe we'll do it later three different times. And then they proceeded to play those three songs. And that's sort of one of my, I mean, that's sort of what they did. Uh, What I discovered was that instead of being a show um, I'm telling you this, but anyway, um, (laughs) you want me to say this stuff Uh, 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 instead of being a show, uh, what you got at a Grateful Dead concert was kind of a uh, uh, a reading of the collective mind of the people on stage um, and how they were feeling that night. Uh, and uh, I remember, uh, Gar- you know, having a long conversation with Garcia about. Well, the first lesson I learned when I was around got to be around the band. The first lesson I learned was never rush up to a band member after a show and say that was great da, 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 you know cuz he'll look at you and go are you kidding me did you hear what fill in the blank how he was playing and i sucked and da, da. and and the point being that that there there are also shows where i knew they were going to come on the stage going god that was and i'm going i don't care what you said that was brilliant um and and um, you know the point is jerry admitted uh, many times uh he was the worst guide to whether or not it was a good show quite often um maybe his feet hurt maybe you know whatever um and the point was that all he could do was you know play the best he could let it go and you know maybe tomorrow will be better um and and the, the classic example as he told the story was uh of losing it on Lesh, which did not happen very often, um, um, and like shoving him actually uh, down the stairs at the Fillmore West, um, uh, to, to because it was just he was like so frustrated, and then they ended up using music from that night uh, in Anthem of the Sun. Right. Uh, so you know, <laughs> he kind of realized that that uh, he's not in the pos- best position to evaluate it. Um, you know, he, he might think it's going great and it actually sounds very flat to the audience or sure. vice versa. So, so
1: much of that, so much of that is experiential, even as a fan. I mean, we would be at shows and think that was the greatest show ever. And then you go back and listen to the tape. That really wasn't that good of a show, but in that moment where I was, that was the greatest thing I had
0: ever heard. I I met one of my closest uh, deadhead friends. Um, I met uh, on, on the bus to a show in Sacramento from San Francisco. And in the summer of 79, and um, we uh, both have tended to agree that it's in the ranking for worst show ever. Um, Certainly, it's in the the running. It it was just, it was flat, dull. They just, you know, they were still integrating uh, Brent, and it it just wasn't, it did not pick up. Um, But I remember my friend Danny is his name, uh, Danny saying, um, something to the effect of, "Well, I'll have to hear the tape, but," and I went, "Yeah, yes, yes, on both counts." But I, I'm, I'm predicting. and This was as we were leaving the show. I'm predicting. You know, I'm predicting what you, you, know, God, what was that about? So, right. You know, and that's and that's the that's that's the deal of being a deadhead. Um, is of course that uh, you that there's there's a high degree of variability um there's you know there's there's the occasional great show there's many 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 very high high grade shows um and then there's you know eh, eh, eh. and right. then there's the occasional catastrophic sure well th- that's the experience
1: really now with any improvisational band that's the whole, and you're going exactly.
0: for it and it's not always going to work no uh david freiberg's um the uh, bass player for uh Quicksilver and whatnot, said that, uh, that what he loved about the Grateful Dead was that he loved watching musicians jump off a cliff. And, you know, sometimes you fly and a lot of the times you end up on the rocks and, you know, but in that risk, there's the opportunity for something very special. Right,
1: right. So so throughout the 70s, then you're, you're still working on the Kerouac biography. And are, are you going to a, a good amount of shows? I mean, you're a, you're a Grateful Dead fan at this point.
0: I'm a, certainly a Grateful Dead fan. This is, again, um, this is the 70s, not the 80s. So you right. know, people did not generally go to follow tours, for instance. Now, that that really was something that happened in the 80s. Um, and I, I was a graduate student. I had no money. Um, so as a result, um, th- uh, through the 70s, I went to the shows that they played in, you know, my immediate neighborhood. Um and there were some, you know, really terrific shows. The show, the show at uh, uh, there's a kind of legendary show. Actually, I wrote the liner notes um, for uh, in March of I think it was March 30th, but don't don't hold me to that. Uh, 1973 in Springfield. Uh, it was the day after Garcia had gotten busted uh, in New Jersey. We're driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. And, you know, we woke up in the morning reading the paper thinking, hmm, I wonder if we're going to have a show. Uh, and, of course, you know, it's like uh, Jerry wasn't exactly going to worry about uh, a pot bust. Um, okay. um, and uh, uh, th- which was a wonderful show. And then in 74, um, I got the, the wonderful privilege in June of 74 of seeing The Wall of Sound. Which indoors, Springfield Civic Center is about 7,000 capacity, which is to say, you know, it's not an NBA uh, arena. It's it's relatively small. And um, you walk in, when you walk through the lobby, you walk in, you're at the the rear of the hall. And I swear to God, it looked like a spaceship ready to lift off or something. It was pretty indoors. It just about scraped the ceiling. Um, And indoors, it was, it was, it was just fabulous. That's and, awesome. and I might add, the first set, they did a... Um, I've never heard it since. I, gotta, I don't know why. I've never organized that. Um, they did a uh, uh, playing in the band and Uncle Jan's band back into playing in the band. It was like 45 minutes um, to end the first set. And we were on our knees. At, at intermission, we were simply on our knees. It was some of the, some of the best music I ever heard them play live. Wow. With me in the room. Um, remarkable. So I, I actually,
1: ahead of a little while back, we had a Rick Turner on talking about the wall and the whole genesis of it, did some wonderful conversations with him. So how did you then, pers- how did you end up taking that next step from fan to employee to confidant?
0: Well, it was a combination of, I, I used to say that, uh, that I knew that the only, okay, so... Uh, I started the Kerouac book in 1979, uh, 72. Um, finished by about 74, I realized that there were a lot of connections between the beat scene and Kerouac and you Neil know, Cassidy, of course, and The Grateful Dead, and I wanted to do a second book about The Grateful Dead, but I also knew that that I, you know, I didn't. I had no concept of, uh, I didn't have any phone numbers, I didn't have any connections. So, anyway, um, I finished the first draft of the Kerouac book, moved out to the Bay area uh, to live because I had seen San Francisco. uh, A research trip had taken me to San Francisco and I fell in love with the city said, here I stay. And a couple of years later, here I stay. And I've been here now more than 40 years. (laughs) Um, And, and, um, uh, and part of that, of course, was the, the, the you know the appeal. Part of the appeal, of course, was that you know I was closer to them and 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 in particular to uh, to uh, uh, lots of shows. So that was in '76, um, and uh, finally, my Kerouac book was published in '79, and I sent a copy to Jerry and a copy to Hunter uh, at the uh, Deadhead uh, mailing address, Post Office Box 1065 san rafael and very long so now i'm plotting and scheming how do i how do i get next to the grateful dead so i i wrote an i went and pitched an article um, in the fall of 79 i pitched an article to the san francisco chronicles sunday magazine uh, and said you know you should do an article about the grateful dead at new year's and they went yeah great idea okay go so at New Year's twelve thirty one seventy nine, uh, Bill Graham was a butterfly. Uh, I was sick as a dog, but I had to go to the show. Um, and again, long story short, uh, the article. Um, so it was a long article, and, and the editor said, "I want. I don't want to cut this article. I want. But we need. We need to sell lots of ads, and have a fat issue to put you in. So just wait." So in August of 1980, now it is, um, there's an advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, There's a, the entertainment section is called the pink section, the the pink. And there was a big ad and it was two skeletons crowned in roses with their elbows. uh, They're as tall as, uh, you know, and it's this uh, cartoon, I guess you could say of the Warfield theater. And the caption is, they're not the best at what they do. They're the only ones who do what they do. No mention of the band's name in this ad. And it listed 13 shows. So I, in addition to uh, 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 see what had happened, the inside story on this is in June of 80, they played two, two shows at uh, Folsom Fields in Boulder. And on the tickets, it said that it was the celebration of the 15th anniversary of the Grateful Dead, which at the time seemed like quite an anniversary, right? 15 years. Well, it's long. (laughs) And um, uh, they played a normal show. And as they're going back to the hotel, basically, they're saying, that's weird, you know? I mean, the response to the show was like really, really dull. And the rock scully i think it was rock um says to them rock, rock scully was then theoretically the publicist i guess um and he says to them well yeah that's because uh, the audience was some, expecting something special it's the 15th anniversary and the van said what <laughs> so the next day they did a little you know i forget but they they opened with you know a second some second set material you know to open the show and and, and uh and then they started, you know, pl- plotting. Very grateful that, you know, I mean, management not telling the band, you know, the promoter. Anyway, uh, so the the result was to celebrate the fifteenth anniversary. They did the run in San Francisco, and then a couple in New Orleans, and then the run in, at Radio City. And in order to uh, fill, because they were going to do an acoustic set and then two electric sets. Um, that's two intermissions, so they brought in Franken and Davis to do some skits for the Halloween show, which would, this is even before widespread cable, this is how far back this goes, Um, this was, uh, they set up a closed-circuit TV thing or video um, with about 10 movie theaters up and down the East Coast um, and broadcast that on, uh, as I say, uh, Halloween. And in the process of making that video more detailed than, than probably we have time for, uh, Jerry met with some deadheads as a uh, way of collecting stories about you know, road adventures. And I got into that meeting, again, long story short, and um, mentioned the Kerouac book, and he got very excited. Now, I am proud of the book, and, and I thought I wrote, did a decent job. But the fact was that Kerouac was Jerry's avatar, his, his, his role model from the time he was 16. Um, he was this you know, young uh, wannabe art student uh, in North Beach um, who got turned onto guitar specifically by that, that teacher, uh, the teacher of that art class, a guy named Wally Hedrick, who's actually, very, I'm now writing a book about that includes very significantly Wally Hedrick. So that's another story. And um, uh, Wally sent him down a city lights and said, "Go read this book on the road," which was like on the bestseller list then. It was like current, um, and that was it. Jerry Jerry was a beat, you know. Jerry always thought of himself as a as a late stage beatnik. He was not a hippie, uh, on that, on, you know, in that regard. Um, and uh, followed that. So when he got my book and and decided that, well, yeah, this guy knows, you know, as he said, uh, my prejudices confirmed his. Um and and uh so um he liked it. And long again, long story short, a couple of months later, he said, sent um a couple of guys uh, to me and they said, Jerry says, why don't you do us? Why don't you write a book about the Grateful Dead? Wow. Which of course I've been dreaming about for seven years, and I managed to maintain my cool at that moment and just say, Well, gee, you know, sounds like a good idea. Let me give that some thought. And then I went home, got, went home and got seriously plastered and, you know, <laughs> and the rest was, you know, history. So I did that. I was working on the book for three years. And what I didn't realize at the time uh, was that I was sort of uh, slowly being pledged to a, the, the, you know, it's not a fraternity because it was, we used to call them frorities, which is to say, you know, um, <laughs> men and women. Uh, the family of the Grateful Dead. Um, And I didn't piss off anybody too much. So in 1984, there was a band meeting, which is an all-company meeting, in which the receptionist said, Rock had finally got- gone off for a vacation and, a- and some rehab because he needed to. And, uh, and uh, nobody was dealing with the press. The, the manager didn't like the press and was too busy anyway one manager, you know, grateful that we're unmanageable for, for starters. And, um, uh, so Jerry said, get McNally to do it. He knows that shit. Did you know that shit? Well, I had done a book tour. Uh, so I knew that a publicist, um, uh, called the media, you know, members of the media and said, say something nice about my client. And frankly, I've now been doing this for 41 years, uh, almost no, 35 years. And, um, I haven't learned a friggin' thing since i mean <laughs> the, the technology changes but the answer you know the, the 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 um and you know there's now social media which i leave to smarter people than myself um but the fact is that that um uh, being a publicist it, well it's not rocket science and it's it's mostly a matter of relationships which of course i came in at the top you know i mean most people start out repping a band you know Dave Wiseman started, you know, when he started, you guys are doing relatively small business and right, etc. You know, and and you know, it's a long way, um, to the top if you want to rock and roll. <laughs> so, you start this, I mean, you come in as a
1: biographer, you end up, you get elevated if you want to call it that to publicist. Is this just completely surreal for you, or is this just hey, put my head down, I've got a job to do forgetting about this is a band I've been a fan of all this time
0: by then you know I knew them well enough as people that I wasn't like giddy with uh oh my god I mean having a paycheck was really nice right I mean, at the moment I I was I was I needed work and um uh the, at that moment I was getting what the uh people in the office got which was um more than I'd ever made before um still not uh, deluxe, but but uh, you know, uh, I had a I, it was a living, um, uh, and for about six months I tried to do both. Right, and that's not possible. And after about uh, simultaneously, and then a you know not the wine because it was the best job of a lifetime. But um, you worked when you worked for the Grateful Dead, right? Okay, so here's the ultimate one-liner about Grateful Dead and work. Um, we were in Washington, D.C., and it was a typically uh, god-awful, 100 degrees, 100% humidity um, uh, at RFK Stadium. And we were coming off the stage. a wee, uh, I and Ramrod, who was the Grateful Dead's crew chief and one of the best men I've ever met in my life. Um, and uh, we got to the top of the stairs and, you know, he'd been out, he'd, we'd been outside 12 hours in miserable conditions. And Ramrod said, well, well, at least it's not a real job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's true. You know, it wasn't, we weren't working for a corporation. We were, and it it had so much, there was craziness and, and drama and adventure and all kinds of stuff. Um, And we all knew that, again, it was just, it was a lot more than just a job. I call that. When people ask me about that, I
1: call it yes, it's the hardest easy job in the world.
0: There you go, and uh, and and people, <laughs> um, when when uh, when I I came after a couple of months of uh, being an employee, um, I I came to a band meeting. I said, listen, you know, you should take me out on the road. And one of the crew members um, said, um, uh, we've already sold the tickets. What do we need you for? <laughs> And I said, because uh, the media interest has reached the point by the middle 80s. In addition to just being the the only sort of weird act around and the last remaining, the last last man standing, so-called, from uh, San Francisco, uh, the the, uh, uh, fact was that by now in the middle 80s, the people of my generation, which is to say I was then 35, middle... uh, The second wave, okay, so there are lots of waves of deadheads. The first wave was the San Franciscans. The second wave were the East Coast college kids. That'd be me and and my my peers. And by now, in the middle 80s, they're making decisions at newspapers and TV, and they want to cover The Grateful Dead because they love The Grateful Dead, and they want to do it positively. Um, However, they're going to cover it. And if they can't get in, uh, then... They're going to cover the parking lot, which, you know, you can make it look good. You can make it look bad. Um, How so hard ran, is that,
1: though? How hard is that job for you when you have a band that essentially really doesn't want to deal with the media, if I'm right?
0: Well, that was the point. It was an easy job in that way because it meant I didn't have anybody supervising me. I had what I had to do was get the media, in particular TV cameras and still cameras in and out with as little uh, interaction with zero interaction with band members or crew as humanly possible. Fortunately, um, Dan Healy um, uh, was, you know, more than cooperative. And so what they, he and and Ultrasound made a a sound feed available to me for them, for the TV, uh, out at the soundboard. So I'd meet the TV and walk them into the soundboard uh, and get, you know, get them set up and they would get, you know, good sound and, you know, the pretty lights and, and, and they, uh, uh, you know, they were happy. Um, and I'd give them some, uh, uh, talk if they wanted to talk to somebody. So it, you know, it worked out fine. Now there were times when I said, you know, when somebody would look at me and go, did you do anything tonight? I said, well, we had five TV crews and six photographers and you never saw them, did you? And they went, uh, no <laughs> nice job I said, well then I did a really good show <laughs> as,
1: as it goes on and I when in the dark comes out and everything just blows up does everything change for you and the job Does it just get that much more monumental
0: it just got hard I mean it got harder um uh, you know pretty much from 88 on um uh you know, any show that we didn't have some kind of weird weirdness or disaster, uh, you know, was it like a triumph? Um, the uh, I remember we had this great show in LA. We pulled everything off. It was all good, and um, I'm not even going to go into it. But it was there was a particularly horrible story uh, after, uh, with a deadhead who did way way too much and got in a car and ended up killing somebody. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was like. Can we, are we responsible for that person? Well, maybe we are. I don't, you know, but whatever. Uh, the catch, regardless,
1: regardless of whether you're responsible, you're still going to have to tackle the issue.
0: The, the issue is going to come up. And, they, you know, obviously what happened just in Houston um, is something that's on sure. my mind. Um, yeah. um, and I, you know, and I, 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 there are people I suspect that I know you know, from Live Nation, who, who are going to answer questions about it too, not just, not just the act. Uh, There are ways to make sure that, among other things, you don't have people, I mean, we, you will remember, uh, Bob, we were playing the step back song, uh, when there were, you know, when the people in the front row were starting to get squos at a Grateful Dead, it happened, not violently, the way, you know, it happened in Houston, with people just, you know, careening, Um, but, you know, and you'd have to say, okay, we're not gonna play until every everybody from the front row to the last takes three steps back. And then now why don't you take three more? And take another step and back. And take another. And eventually when things calmed down, then it was like we played. And so we never had that kind of we never had a major problem inside. Um uh so yeah there's a lot of complexities to, to being a band, particularly when you're a successful band and you have large audiences. And one of them is that you, ha- you're kind of responsible for your audience and there are things you have to think about. Um, and uh, you can't just, you know, do it on the fly. And there have been the, the legendary, you know, when the, who, uh, the, the, the who in, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati right. where, where there was a crush and, and, and it There was no setup to where people couldn't just cram, try and cram through the door. You, that's why you get those setups where you know you sort of go through like a little, uh, you know, white rat psycho test maze to get to the front door. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, And what happened, of course, was that the the who did a sound check and the people in front thought it was the start of the show. They heard that the door's open and boom right through the glass people died and people yeah. died and that's you know as as i've that's the promoter's fault right right as it as that's blowing
1: up and there's all these new media demands does that have an effect on the guys in the band or are you doing such a good job of shielding them from it they don't even notice what's going on that they're getting so big now
0: they knew so they certainly knew they were getting that big because i i was at a meeting in uh december of 85 uh, in the lobby of Front Street, which is where the important band meetings actually took place, um, and basically Jerry said, "Well, you know," and this was not done with like, "Yeah, said, you know, we're going to have to play stadiums next summer. Not quite big enough to play full stadiums, but but we can't we can't function with the venues in the summer when there's you know people are out of school and whatnot." Um, and so the discussion was, well, who do we tour with? And of course, there was one obvious answer, which was Dylan. So we did that first tour with Dylan, backed by Tom Petty. Um, and then, of course, they made the huge mistake of having a hit, and and it just it just went. So uh, for the band, uh, they were already used to full houses. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, you'd have to ask the band how much it affected them with the, the various stuff. We, we, being Cameron, in particular, Cameron Sears, who was the, the tour manager, and I, um, as the publicist, were, um, uh, did our very best to shield them from, you know, say, the fact that 30 people got arrested. Unless they asked, you know, you give them the truth. Um, but I'll give you an example. <laughs> it's a very funny scene. We were in Memphis for the first time in forever. 95. Right? At the Pyramid. At the Pyramid. I was there. And um, the uh, I'm with like every TV crew in the Memphis area. Uh, you know, it was a big deal. And outside, people are trying to sneak in. A lot of people are trying to sneak in. Now, the Memphis cops were much like the New Orleans cops, which is to say it's a party town, you know, whether it's Beale Street or or Bourbon Bourbon Street. And they were actually very tolerant, incredibly tolerant. Um, They were grabbing people, you know, throwing them back, as it were, but nobody was getting beat up and nobody was getting arrested. So I get this radio call from our head of security saying, um, because, I mean, it's a mess out there. It's not quite a riot, but because as I say, the, the cops, if the cops had wanted to make a riot, they could have. You know, there, was, there, was eno- there was enough Michigas going on. But, and uh, uh, so I get a, our security guy says, listen, you know, it's really a mess out here. We do not really need the TV cameras to see this. Why don't you keep them? So I said, guys, take a couple extra songs. What the hell? And you know, nobody wanted to leave. They were having a good time. And so I sort of kept them trapped at the soundboard for an extra 20 minutes, by which time everything had cleared and calmed down and they could go back to the stations without filming what looked like worse than it was. Because as, as I said, the, the sheer experience of the Beale streets and the Bourbon streets and where you have police that are used, you, well, frankly, used to a bunch of drunks so that excited college kids is actually kind of easy to deal with by comparison.
1: Right. As your tenure goes on, you become more than just an employee. You've, you cultivate personal relationships with the band. I know that Billy was your best man and Jerry walked Susanna down the, the aisle at the wedding, at your wedding. Um, is there a fine line? Is there a tightrope that you have to balance between the personal and the business, or is it all just flow seamlessly together?
0: No, I wouldn't say it's seamless. I know that when Susanna um, said to me, um, I, I want Jerry to walk me down the aisle because her, her father had passed when she was a wee one. And um, her other, you know, her, her alternate father, a uh, lovely man, uh, uh, but he was traveling, I don't know, the far reaches of the planet. He, li- he went to over 100 countries, so he was, uh, he was somewhere. Wow. Um, so so was a, a, Susanna said, you know, I think I'm going to ask Jerry. And I said, you're his friend you can I can't I am as an employee that would be really inappropriate for me to do that um and he and so she asked him and then he, he said to me he said I'm perfectly willing to do it but I gotta warn you none of the weddings I've ever been part of have ever the, the relationships never went too too well <laughs> uh I said yeah well we'll take the chance and that was 36 <laughs> years ago so or 7 30 whatever um uh, so the, the answer is that, you know, we, we, you know, so in 86, uh, you know, when Jerry went down with uh, the, uh, the, uh, a coma, coma yeah. um, I got laid off. I was the only person laid off cause I was the new guy. And, and frankly, uh, Phil and Mickey were like nervous about life at that moment and, and wanted to prove, wanted to prove that, you know, they were in control of the situation. So they, they laid me off. In 92, uh, when Jerry was ill and we had to skip a tour, uh, instead of being laid off, I got called into the room and asked, you know, asked, was asked for advice. Um, and which, and I reflected later, it's so like, ah, you've been around long enough now. <laughs> and I dealt with Brant and, you know, stuff. Uh, um and then you know when when Jerry died, um, uh, the the band was all sitting in the office, and I walked. We I had a press conference um, out in the parking lot of the office, and and uh, I walked in and basically said, "Anybody want to come with me?" And they went, "Oh no no no, you can handle it. It's it's fine. Nobody you know nobody was thrilled about having to do that." So right heavy. So yeah, bit by bit, my my relationship you know certainly did get deeper and thicker and whatnot
1: when you know being on and you're on the road and you're doing that we all it's grueling to be on the road at any level but especially at the level where you're in stadiums and all that and you have to be a fan of the music or it would probably get to the point of being unbearable but what i want to know is did you ever get to a minute or second a set to just stop and enjoy the music and the scene and really take stock of where you were or was it just i mean could you you were a fan of this music did you ever get to stop and enjoy it
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, it was the greatest job in the world because I was usually free for the second set. Um, you know, I mean, I'd have to be, I'd be listening to the, the radio at the, you know, the, the, we had, uh, walkie talkies, um, to, you know, in case somebody needed me and, and whatnot that I had to make certain, certain, you know, uh, circuits to, to, you know, just make, to stay on top of things. Um, but no, no, no. I, 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 I got my fair share of of, of the second set, um, and I, and I got to say, the Grateful Dead. Remember, the hard part. I don't need to tell you. The hard part of touring is the travel. It's not. The, it's not the playing. It's, it's the, the other twenty hours of the day. And the thing about the Grateful Dead is a okay. Show ends. Band comes off the stage. The food guys are standing there with shopping bags full of whatever they've ordered to take home, to take with them, which could go from peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which was what Phil Esch would order, which was like, <laughs> you could order anything and you pee pee and J, um, to, you know, full meals. Um, the vans would be lined up, waiting. You hop in the van, you go 20 minutes. It was always 20 minutes. Don't ask. Somehow there's an airport 20 minutes from every venue. That's not literally true, but close enough. You go drive out on the tarmac. It's, a, it's almost always a private airport, or at least the private area of a big airport. Mm-hmm. You walk up the stairs onto the plane. You fly an hour. Reverse the process. And about two hours, roughly, after the show, when people are still straggling out of the parking lot we're in our room in the next town in the next town and it was usually a day off usually right. we had just done 3 at that town where you know sometimes in the stadiums it was suffice it to say and we're talking talking—we're not talking about flea bags we're talking about five star hotels and so it was it, they had figured out at least how to minimize the you know the travel damage Uh, So you didn't go into airports if you could humanly help it uh, because dealing with the people, you know, that gets a little harder. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah.
1: Wow. I heard, and and you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong. I heard that on a business level, if everybody wasn't on board with something, it wouldn't happen. True. Were there opportunities that got passed on where you were saying, God, we really should be doing this.
0: Well, you know, The point is, how do you measure an opportunity? And the opportunities were generally financial. And, you know, the the Grateful Dead was, generally speaking, not greedy. So that, um, uh, you know, people were making more money than they ever dreamed of making. um, And still doing exactly what they'd always done, which is just to play their music. Uh, As you say, uh, it, it was a one loud no within the band. One loud no was a veto. It was a it was a, a very, a very conservative democracy. Conservative in the sense that it was very difficult, you know. To, now that meant that if everybody agreed, then you actually got things done. But it it you know it was uh, so somebody would want to uh, whether it was an obscure show or more likely some video or commer- you know commercials eh, uh, sell the music to uh, you know. Um, Right, I still to this day uh, have a sore jaw from it dropping when I saw Bob Dylan selling his music to uh, what was the underwear company? The yeah, uh, not, women's not, underwear, not Haynes. Um, um... No, 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 something very chic, whatever yeah. it was, or, <laughs> or maybe it was per- maybe even it was perfume, I don't know, whatever it was, it was unlikely, and it was just like, do you really need the money? I mean, <laughs> right, what? why? Wow, um, after after
1: after Jerry passes in '95, you, you stayed on until GDP shut its doors in two thousand four. What are those first couple of years like? What's the adjustment?
0: Well, you know, we were all grieving. I mean, you know, uh, so you've got the uh, the people I work with, which is in particular the office staff, um, and 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 we're trying to communicate with deadheads. And I mean, I whether it was naive and slightly romantic, but I I thought of myself as trying to hold the whole thing together in terms of giving information to deadheads and relating to them as people and and encouraging them. Um, uh, and you know, I had no no clue uh, about what was going to come. Right. Um, uh, uh, so. I finished, you know, eventually I went on halftime and, and finished the book it's finally time to do that um, and put it out um, in 2002 and then in 04 production company uh, was folded um, and I went to work for Bobby for four years um, because his, his, so this is 2004, so now Jerry's been dead nine years Jerry, Bobby's uh, Bobby does not like necessarily talk about uh, emotional things very well because because um, whoever you know whoever he is um, but the way you can observe his grieving for example was his basic refusal to play Grateful Dead material for 10 years right right um, and he he had his his the art band that is to say Rob Wasserman who's a, not a uh, improvisational bass player is a brilliant bass player but uh, he was a, an art bass player um, and um, uh, they had the, uh, uh, the that original version of Rat Dog, you know, with either Johnny or, so anyway uh, and so what happened was in in um, early 04, I guess it was um, the um, I saw I was doing a PR tour for a record that Bobby put out uh, of I think it was Best Hits, I don't know um and um uh or maybe it was an early rat dog record, and um uh, saw the band, uh, the rat the new rat dog, which included Robin Sylvester, um, in New Jersey at the Performing Arts Center there. And I was standing next to John Shear who was then Bobby's co-manager, and, and in the middle of this, because they were jamming, and I was like, oh, hmm been missing this for the last nine years um (laughs) and um and i turned to him i said i want in uh you know i'm i want to go back on the road um bus and all and uh because this band can grow whereas i didn't think that was the case with with the earlier band which was designed not to open up it was designed to be a blues
1: band essentially with johnny on keyboards and all that sure
0: yeah and it was a good blues band but you know so uh so the four years of rat dog to oa was you know was great and um and then um, bobby went uh went with phil uh to do further um and that didn't include either bobby's management or, or me that was sort of junior management if
1: if we go back for a minute but go back into the 90s when GDP is still there and you got the further festivals and the other ones and the dead, all these different offshoots. And and you're still you're still part of that. How oh, hard yeah. is that emotionally? Is it, it it's, it's still, the wound is still fresh, if you will, oh, yeah. still open. How hard is it emotionally for you to go out there and do all this without Garcia being a part of it? And here we are again, though.
0: You know, I felt that more... When I saw Dead and Company, which I respect greatly as a band, but the first time I went to see Dead and Company at Shoreline, it was like, "Where is he?" Maybe because it was at Shoreline, and I wasn't working. You know, I didn't have my normal right, sure. scurrying around and pretending I was working. Uh, and I and I I sort of uh, at in the, the 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 I do remember. And I, whether it was the dead, or the, I think it was the other ones. I, I can't even remember the name. Right. But we started the tour and I later wrote a press release, which was the, that I called it the who knew tour, because nobody knew what it was going to be like to try and play Grateful Dead music. Um, and I think we had, I, I cannot remember who, who was and wasn't on that particular tour. But the spark was clearly, you know, by the second show, I think we knew. Whoa, okay, we're back. Um, and um, and I was so proud of that, and so proud of them carrying on that um, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I miss I miss Jerry. I still I still do. I still have occasional, not frequent, but occasional dreams uh, where he pops up and says something. i
1: I think the fact that it was still there, like you said, oh, it's still there, is really, I mean, of course, nothing to denigrate Jerry. or I mean, it's a testament to the songs.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, so here, here's the real deal, and we're, where we're at now in 2021, which is um, I knew, frankly, even, and I didn't have, was not privileged any inside gossip. I wasn't working with any of the band members. Um, uh, friendly with them, but not working with them. And I knew that there was going to be a fairly well. It, there simply had to be. There was, there was too much psychic momentum and bluntly, too much money. Um, so, what I had no clue about, and what I did not realize until maybe a year later, and the year, which you are a part of, which was um, that. In saying goodbye to the Grateful Dead, uh, as as it was constituted, it fairly well. Um, Dead had said, "Yeah, we love these guys, and, you know, but the fact is that what we really love is the music, and it's almost a matter of taste whether you like Dark Star's version or J- now J Rad's version or." You know, you name it, O'Teal's, ver- it's a Dead and Company's version. Right. And in fact, that, that fairly well simply reignited the whole the whole shtick. Um, and and I, I never saw that coming. I assumed that being a deadhead would sort of dwindle away because all things dwindle away, except apparently being a deadhead. Uh, And the fact that the fan
1: base is getting older and older and older, but now new uh, fans are coming in.
0: But now you, you go to any one of your shows, J-Rad show, the audience looks the same as it did 50 years ago, you know, demographically and age-wise. I attribute that to,
1: I attribute that to cool songs and cool parents.
0: All that, all that. And, and, you know, the material, Bruce Hornsby called um, Grateful Dead songs, hymns, um, and, and, you know, some of them really are, you know, Ripple really is. Uh, but the fact is that, that uh, the, uh, the body of the work um, is astonishing. And, um, you know, there are going to be people listening to Dark Star 100 years from now. Think about that. I actually listen to music that's 100 years old. I, mean, right. I listen to music from the early 20s. Recorded then, Uh, sounds by current standards awful, but but uh, so but there's not much uh, that and not many people listen to music that's that old, Um, but it will endure because because it has that that secret ingredient of improvisation, so that it will it'll sometimes it'll be great and sometimes it won't, but the 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 openness to possibility is something. Not everybody wants to hear that, you know, you, you can describe that as noodling, um, as, as many have, uh, but there obviously are people for whom, yeah, that's the way to fly.
1: I want to ask you then, and we're running out of time, and I had a couple others, but I'm going to go to this question because it's a broad one, but it, it segues right from that, and it's a big one here, but, you know, you, you're, you're a gentleman who has a doctorate in history and you've, you've studied and you've documented and you've been a part of the Grateful Dead's journey. The question is, where do you, as a person who's been there with all that, where do you see their place in the history of American music?
0: Um, I think they're the, uh, they're the greatest uh, rock jazz fusion band uh, that ever played. Uh, and that includes uh, their opening act, Miles Davis and the Bitches Brew Band. <laughs> Right, which they were appropriately embarrassed at uh, having miles open for them, but you know, um, he did. He didn't seem to mind. They, they you know, whereas uh, with an, uh, another uh, band, he refused to have somebody. You know, he refused to open for them and made them made them uh, go first. Uh, they, uh, the point is, it's unique. Um, you start you know, you start with the original band and you've got, you know, a, a banjo player b- applying bluegrass style, single point notes to the guitar, which nobody was doing at the time, really. I mean, uh, the limited little blues runs, but you know, what, where he went, uh, you know, it was you know, applying John Coltrane to the guitar. Um, uh, You've got, you know, a folky, you've got an r and drummer. Later, you have a, a guy who started out as a marching band drummer. Um, and uh, I don't know, sometimes you've seen this, uh, but I, I urge people sometimes, just look at the way Mickey and Billy sit. Billy sort of slumps and is very relaxed. And to this day, Mickey's still got his Air Force... You know i mean that guy's got the straightest spine on the planet um and it's fascinating you know that contrast so anyway you've got guys coming from you know phil is as the trumpet player stockhausen fan and you know everybody was coming from a different place and they they melted together through improvisation and lsd frankly and and that experience and um came up with something completely unique
1: yeah and that music and it'll endure i was just that's exactly what i was going to say and this music's going to live on forever it's been so well documented over the years there's people playing it there's a cover band in every town who keeps it alive for the locals and it i mean
0: five cover bands in every town it's amazing
1: yep i do a segment about that on the podcast too i interview a different cover band every episode is to hear about their community and how they interpret well, the music and...
0: and you know which is why you know the next time i will see you face to face in april um that's what how skull and roses could even exist right. is because um the idea of bringing 25 different bands playing grateful dead music into one spot might have sounded weird once upon a time but now it makes total sense
1: yeah there's so many different ways it, you know it's become the it's like the great american songbook it's like the real book you know, it's yeah. here's here's a set of standards. We have musicians who know how to play it. Now let's listen to how they interpret it.
0: Exactly. You know, right. and everybody does it a little differently. And um I have been, as part of my work with Skull and Roses, you know, I've talked with endless different musicians about how they approach it. And it's it's like a it's like a musical Rorschach test. <laughs>
1: i love it well dennis i cannot thank you enough i know you got to get moving on to your next project today but i seriously thank you so much for taking the time with me i've really really enjoyed this anytime and and i look forward to seeing you again we'll see you in april that's right Uh, we will see you in april then you get to work that's right that's not work man yeah they call it playing (laughs) that's right all right ladies and gentlemen that is dennis mcnally who spent his morning with us thank you so much my friend you're welcome That was so great. I I enjoyed that as much as anything I've done up to this point, and that also will bring us to the end of another episode, and I'd again like to thank Dennis McNally for taking the time to help make this a really special edition. Once again, I'd like to thank the Pantheon Podcast Network for inviting me into their family. I'm so excited to bring this podcast and knowledge of the Grateful Dead to an even wider audience, so looking forward to being here for a long time to come. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week, or you can show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling and growing. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. And they have a really cool gig coming up on December 4th called the Hanukkah Hullabaloo. It's an annual gig they do here in St. Louis that's really, really cool. So go to their website and check out what it's all about. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English... And he should be putting out an album of this stuff any day now. I will keep you posted for sure. I'll be back in two weeks with episode number 24 featuring Al Schneer, guitar player from Moe. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We really need things to keep trending in the right direction, so take care of yourselves, and just as importantly, think about taking care of all of those around you. Thanks for being here.